0: Uh, here in the Changing Character of War uh, program, on uh, the gaps in the Geneva Conventions, and uh, you know, did the Geneva Conventions fit the types of modern conflicts that states are now fighting between states and non state groups? I think this was in about 2006. Um, I think at the time, you know, that was now 12 years ago, people thought uh, I was a crazy Bush administration official uh, looking for holes in the Geneva Conventions. I then ended up turning that into a very long law review article. It was the lead article in the uh, American Journal of International Law a few years ago. And I think it's now become sort of standard doctrine that, in fact, there, even the president of the ICRC, Jacob Kellenberger, came out a couple of years ago and said, yes, there actually are gaps in the Geneva Conventions and that we need to modernize, uh, uh, maybe not negotiate new conventions, but at least to try to fill these gaps in non-international armed conflict. So, Actually, I always rather fondly remember that uh, talk here um, at Oxford. Um, so I am—I'm uh, going to not so much review the things that have happened um, because you're a well-educated audience. You can hopefully you don't read um, all of President Trump's tweets because that really is just uh, too depressing. Uh, uh, but you do read the newspapers, so I—I'm going to not so much um, look. Backwards over the last year, although I'll mention a couple of things, is to frankly um, look forwards um, and talk about things that um, have not happened, comma, yet. <laughs> uh, and so it will actually be an opportunity for you to, some of these things you all have probably been thinking about yourselves, some of them will be things that hopefully I can focus you on a little bit and then we can look over the next few uh, months uh, or year and see you know, what happens uh, in, in some of these areas. So. Uh, As as you know, it has been uh, 16 months of chaos and controversy, both in terms of uh, policy uh, uh, positions, changes, U-turns, ups and downs from the uh, travel ban to the pullout uh, from Paris to the termination of the Iran deal to the Jerusalem embassy move to... The budding trade war with China and Europe, threats of fire and fury on the North Koreans, except now that we love the North Koreans briefly this week, but we'll see what happens next week. Uh, So lots of um, policy up and down. Um, It's made it, um, and before I get into sort of the five areas that I wanted to talk about of of what to look for, I will mention sort of an insider's view from Washington, It's made it very difficult to staff this administration. Uh, President Trump and the people uh, who are staffing him have had a very difficult time trying to bring in uh, foreign policy officials. Um, uh, uh, As you mentioned, I had uh, uh, organized a group of my senior colleagues uh, who had worked with previous Republican presidents, wrote a letter in 2016 that said that President Trump uh, Lacked the character, values, and experience to be president. In fact, we said if he were elected, he would be the most reckless president in American history. Um, one of my colleagues, I wrote the letter. One of my colleagues made some edits to it, and you, you will, if you take a look at it, you'll see one of the one of the lines says, you know, uh, you know, uh, "particularly his irrationality, particularly dangerous for a person uh, with his finger on the nuclear button." And I said to this colleague, uh, "I said." Let's not put that in. That just sounds really too, too over the top. I want this to be just straight down the middle ladder. Let's not talk about nuclear buttons. Well, <laughs> I assume you all know that the president has been tweeting about the size of his nuclear buttons. So uh, uh, I guess that turned out to be right as well. Um, you know, The president is now on his third national security advisor. He fired his deputy attorney general. He fired his FBI director. Uh, he's fired his chief of staff. Uh, Uh, threatening to fire uh, his uh, attorney general, deputy attorney general. Uh, So, honestly, it's made it very difficult to staff the administration. Uh, Probably 95% of former uh, Republican national security officials of very senior levels, cabinet level, sub-cabinet level, my level, which is the assistant secretary level, have refused to go and serve in this administration, and it's it's tough because most of us have been public servants before. We're committed to the country. One thinks about you know, can you go in and serve the country without being part of this administration's policies? Most of the most of these officials, like me, have just decided we better serve the country from the outside than from the inside. Uh, a few people have uh, gone in, um, and and some of them are really quite good. Um, if there is a Uh, A a ray of light actually for us lawyers. Um, The lawyers who have gone into the Trump administration, the people who are the general counsels of the different uh, national security departments, are really quite good. Uh, They are experienced people who had served in previous Republican administrations, Uh, the, the new legal advisor of the State Department, the position I held, is actually the first woman in history ever to hold the job. The, the position of, as legal advisor for the State Department has existed for about 140 years, and there's never been a woman in the position. And there's a very good uh, woman, former Supreme Court clerk. Actually, for those of you who know your US law, she was a clerk for Justice Breyer. So uh, it was really quite moderate. Um, she, when I get into the substance, she may have a tough job, depending on you know what some of the policies are. But, Um, I think we lawyers can actually take a little bit of solace in the fact that there are some quite good lawyers in these positions. The question is, will they rule the day or will they be overruled uh, as as things go along? Um, uh, And it's made it even harder um, to staff the administration as the Mueller investigation continues. I, before I became legal advisor at the State Department, I spent, as you heard, four years as legal advisor at the National Security Council at the White House. I was in the Situation Room on 9-11. Um, normally, our National Security Council is really where everybody wants to go. For the Americans in the audience, this is really sort of the, the pinnacle of the national security staff. Is you, you've, you want to go and serve on the president's staff because then you were there close to the seat of power. Now. Nobody wants to be there in the White House. They, they And it's left the National Security Council, which, as I said, is now on sort of iteration 3.0, now with John Bolton in charge, uh, with constant turnover. And the people who largely have been going into those positions are actually serving military officials. And my hat is actually off to them, because I think they really are doing it as a matter of service to the country. Uh, and they are specialists in their own ways. They're often colonels of sort of the mid-level. And they're good people. Uh, but you know, these are not the, 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 the traditional, most senior people in their areas uh, uh, taking these positions. So it's been hard to stay at. So I'm going to go through, um, uh, quickly, sort of through five areas to uh, both to look for. Uh, and we will see what happens. Uh, First is sort of counterterrorism policy, uh, use of force more generally, uh, uh, treaties and international agreements, um, and then uh, an approach to two international tribunals, the ICJ uh, and the ICC. And I'll just go quickly through through each of those. Of course, starting on counterterrorism, well, you know, certainly, as you all know, uh, the, the Bush administration's uh, approach towards international law. Uh, was defined in unpleasant ways by its approach towards uh, counterterrorism after you 9 know, 11, Guantanamo, CIA program. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time in the second term of the Bush administration trying to sort of rebalance policy after the first term to try to get Guantanamo closed, to uh, end the CIA program. Uh, uh, and then there were actually, much to everybody's surprise, uh, uh, President Obama continued many of those policies. Uh, you know, I, I knew at the time, and I've been actually talking to a number of my European colleagues in 2009, saying you know, much of the change actually had occurred in the second term of the Bush administration, so don't expect quite as much change as you think you're going to get. You know, the, 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 there's not going to be black to white uh, in the Obama administration. And in fact, in some ways, you know, certain policy, controversial policies like drone strikes ramped up enormously uh, during the Obama administration. So anyway, those two administrations were in many ways defined by their counter-terrorism policy. So you know, what are we, we gonna expect from the uh, Trump administration? Particularly since President Trump said as a, or then candidate Trump said as a candidate that uh, a number of, well, everything he says is controversial, but uh, he said a number of controversial things in this area uh, you know, he said uh, that he was going to return to waterboarding. He said that he was going to target the families of, civilian, or, of, of terrorists. Uh, uh, so he said a number of controversial things. Uh, in fact, um, there has been actually less change so far than one might expect. There's in fact maybe been more continuity um, of Obama uh, <laughs> policies. Um, and I think perhaps the reason for that is uh, that it's less of an issue for his domestic base, uh, you know, almost all of his policies, you know, all the way down to his, you know, expelling the, the football players from the White House last week are really a way to play to his domestic base. And I think his domestic base, you know, while they want to be tough on terrorism, this is not the sort of thing that really motivates them on a day-to-day basis. So there has there have been some change, but there's not been quite as much as, as one would expect. Um, He has loosened up the uh, Obama administration's rules of engagement, particularly with respect to drone strikes. Um, uh, The number of drone strikes have ramped up uh, quite dramatically. Uh, President Obama, I think, had been sort of stung by the criticism and sort of towards the end of his administration, as you recall, had been sort of ramping them down, not a lot, but somewhat, and then had these policy restrictions that he had put in place, largely so that he could leave to his successor, these policy restrictions. Um, One of the earliest executive orders that uh, President Trump issued really within about a week, uh, and this was a public uh, national security memorandum, uh, called for a review of counterterrorism policies to determine whether there were some that went beyond what international law required, uh, uh, sort of suggesting that he was not going to do anything uh, that uh, went beyond what was necessary. Uh, this review did take place. We don't know the full uh, bottom line of the review, but based on press reports, uh, the, the administration uh, made very few changes to the Obama administration's rules of engagement with respect to counterterrorism. Um, they and, and kept in place, in particular, uh, a requirement that there be uh, a, a near certainty of no civilian casualties for drone strikes in outside of areas of active hostilities. So that was a that was actually quite a high bar during the Obama administration. That meant places like Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia that the US would really have to know precisely who they were striking and then try to avoid uh, civilian casualties. And so somewhat surprisingly particularly after President Trump's statement about actually targeting the families of terrorists uh the the administration has kept this rule on limiting civilian casualties now having said that um if you've been following the area closely there was just a report that came out last week that was mandated by congress that the executive branch released probably reluctantly um, but it was required by congress that in fact reported that there had been 500 civilian casualties uh as a result of uh it wasn't clear whether it was just drone strikes or drone strikes and bombings in uh, Iraq, Syria, uh, Yemen, uh, and Afghanistan. Uh, so in fact, there have been a fairly high number of civilian casualties. So I think the takeaway from that is that there's been, uh, the administration has ramped up its counterterrorism efforts, um, with, through drone strikes, but, you know, nothing really, uh, no real dramatic change yet. Um, of course, more Famously, but I think at least so far symbolically, back in January, you'll recall, the president, and this was a sort of a signature thing I think he did at the State of the Union, he said that he was going to reopen Guantanamo. Now, of course, Guantanamo had never closed, so this really was more symbolic. (coughs) Legally, what he really did was he took the Obama administration executive order, which President Obama had famously issued on day two of his own presidency on something like January 21st, 2009, and actually did not rescind the entire executive order, just said, I am rescinding one line in which President Obama had said, I am ordering Guantanamo to be closed within one year. Now, of course, Guantanamo didn't close within one year, so to rescind a line that said the Guantanamo shall be closed within one year was really kind of meaningless, but so it was more sort of sound without a lot of uh, of significance. He then did order a review led by the Secretary of Defense as to you know should Guantanamo continue to be used. That report was finished um, uh, last month. Again, that was not a public report, but by all accounts, it did not recommend that more people be sent to Guantanamo. I personally think, although. You know, i think this is sort of an issue for the president's base to say oh we're going to send more people to guantanamo i think the cabinet agencies are all completely opposed to this because they have seen what's happened over the last 16 years so i I cannot imagine that the secretary of defense uh, the state department particularly the lawyers of the justice department uh, are recommending that more people get sent to guantanamo for those of you who follow this area we are in the midst of a little squabble between the us and the uk over the uh, two ISIS members, the so-called Beatles, who were, uh, I think, being held uh, in either Syria or Iraq right now uh, by, um, uh, by a uh, uh, friendly uh, Kurdish group. And the question is, whether, will they be sent to the United States for trial, uh, and if so, would they be sent to Guantanamo? Uh, I'm confident that our Justice Department would not want to do that because it would make trial extremely difficult. The problem is there doesn't apparently seem to be enough evidence to try them in federal court. And the British government is saying, but well, we don't have enough evidence to try them in court here in the UK. Uh, but they know that they are bad guys. So what are they, they going to do about that? So um, I, I bottom line on all of that uh, area is, I, I, I don't. I'd be quite surprised. Although, frankly, there, this administration has so many U-turns that I guess I can't say that I will ever be really surprised. But I, I guess, I really would be surprised if the president really does start sending people to Guantanamo. This has not worked out well for the United States. Uh, president Bush, in his own memoirs, said, uh, "You know, I, I this became a, uh, a a flashpoint for our enemies and a." Uh, distraction for our allies and I worked hard to get Guantanamo closed. Of course, you know, just because President Bush said that doesn't mean that President Trump wouldn't want to reverse course. But anyway, so we'll see what happens in the whole area of counterterrorism, but it has been actually less of an area of change um, so far. Um, Let me turn to use of force more generally. Uh, uh, Of course, the U.S. when it comes to international law in the last, 20 years or so has been defined by its use of force and whether it follows international law rules and domestic law rules. Um, I think these are things that President Trump probably, you know, knows and cares very little about. Um, And a problem is, other than Secretary Mattis, he probably doesn't have any senior people uh, in his administration who are really trying to urge him to follow international law rules. If anything, the Obama administration became the reverse, almost to a fault, it had. It was all senior lawyers. The president was a constitutional law lawyer, Joe Biden was a lawyer, Eric Holder, the attorney general, a very serious lawyer, Hillary Clinton was a lawyer, John Kerry was a lawyer. Uh, so you know, the situation room meetings actually often would turn into sort of legal discussions about you know, international and constitutional law. You can decide for us as lawyers whether we think that's a good thing or a bad thing. For the people who are non-lawyers, I think they found that a little bit tiresome to have the cabinet sort of debating fine points of law. Um, but I think we perhaps have now gone a little bit too far the other way, is that there are not enough senior people in the administration uh, who are lawyers. Back to the point I made earlier, we do have though the general counsels of the departments who are quite good. So, you know, we'll see if we see law begin to infuse more uh, policy on use of force. So. <clears throat> What have we seen so far? So we've seen two strikes against Syria. Of course, you know that's difficult for any administration to try to square with international law, as we know, uh, because the you know there is no right of recognized right of humanitarian intervention. Uh, the uh, Trump administration did not try to justify the two two strikes in, uh, I guess it was April 2017 and again in April, May 2018, did not try to say that they were legal under international law. I frankly think the president just didn't care. Uh, He doesn't talk in international law terms. Um, But um, what was interesting um, was if you read the fine print, um, Nikki Haley, in her statements about the strike just in April, started using more sort of legal language, uh, and she said uh, that these strikes were uh, uh, lawful, legitimate, and proportionate. Uh, now, just because she says that doesn't make it so, but you know, it, it seemed to be an effort uh, to say that we're recognize that there are constraints here. I suspect part of that may have been because those were joint strikes with the British and the French that we wanted to try to, uh, or at least some people in the administration wanted to try to align themselves uh, with the legal justification adopted by uh, the others. Um, One thing I think that we will see uh, is as these lawyers in the administration sort of get their sea legs, that they will try to act as more of a legal constraint on uh, the president when it comes to some of these policies. Now, it doesn't mean on something like a Syria strike they're going to say you can't do it. I think what they will say is we need to try as best we can to say, uh, explain why a Syria strike is is justified under international law. the president, of course, also famously threatened uh, to rain fire and fury down on the North Koreans. I'm not sure what the legal basis would have been for that. Uh, uh, you know, but again, I, 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 it's, normally the counsel to the president, who's the lead lawyer inside the White House, and the attorney general, and the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Defense would be advising the president on his legal requirements. Uh, it's just not clear that that's happening here. Uh, so uh, I, uh, or, or whether the president cares about it. So I guess overall on use of force, uh, there does not seem to be sort of any consistent policy on use of force. You'll recall that at the time it was issued while unpopular, the Bush administration in the first term had announced its policy of preemption in which it said that if there is a, 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 a national security threat to the United States, Uh, and other remedies have been exhausted uh, that the US would be prepared to use force. Uh, This administration has not yet defined what its policies would be on use of force. Uh, So we'll see if they begin as the administration gets more settled uh, to begin to do that. It it, it troubles me as an international lawyer that the president does seem sort of unmoored from any, any international legal constraints. Um, let me get into a couple more interesting issues now. Um, treaties and, and international agreements. So, um, my, uh, my other boss, I, my second hat is at the Council on Foreign Relations where Richard Haas is the president. Richard Haas has said that here we really do have a strategy. This is the, the Trump, the Trump administration's, uh, strategy is the withdrawal doctrine that they are basically withdrawing from everything. And, uh, you know, he's, out of TPP, out of Paris, out of the Iran deal. If you recall, last fall, the United States withdrew from UNESCO, uh, threatening to withdraw from NAFTA. Basically, all of these international agreements, the president seems to be, uh, uh, and and this is personal animus on his part against these agreements, too. Um, uh, Beyond that, and this is my first sort of let's watch to see what's gonna happen, something that worried me very early on, but hasn't happened yet, is there was a leaked executive order in January 2017, you can pull up in the New York Times, and um, it was just a draft, uh, uh, <laughs> but that called for a, uh, a moratorium on uh, multilateral treaties and a review of all multilateral treaties to which the U.S. was a party to determine which ones we should withdraw from. Um, and I'll just put a little bit of language. It, it required a review of all multilateral treaties that have been ratified and are currently in effect, and recommend to the president whether the United States should continue to be a party. Um, so this order was never signed. Uh, uh, on the other hand, one worries that this is sort of motivating the at least some in the administration. And it, it's obviously um, reflects a, a real hostility, not just to some of these better known agreements that the Trump administration has already withdrawn from, like the Iran deal uh, and Paris, but all multilateral agreements. So uh, uh, even if this executive order wasn't signed, Um, does that mean that the Trump administration is is in fact conducting this review of multilateral agreements to which the U.S. is a party to determine whether they should withdraw withdraw from war? Now, one of the odd things about this executive order was that the preamble cited as the premise for the need to do this was um, the uh, the, the bad agreements like the uh, Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, and the Rights of the Child Convention, conservatives in the United States have never liked those two treaties because they think it, it interferes with sort of domestic uh, affairs. The funny thing is the United States is not a party to those two treaties. So why the premise to withdraw from war treaties should be two treaties that in fact we never became party to is a little bit unclear. Uh, so uh, I. Watch what the administration is going to do with respect to these other treaties. Is it going to be, is it going to be withdrawal from things like, you know, with the uh, ICCPR uh, uh, or, or, or other things or, or environmental treaties? Uh, you know, there was some talk about withdrawing from the UN framework on climate change. Um, uh, frankly, the United States has been in a bad place on treaties recently. Uh, here's a statistic that will surprise you. Uh, During the Bush administration, the United States became party to 163 uh, new treaties. Uh, When I was legal advisor during my last two years, the United States joined 90 treaties in two years alone. Uh, So during that eight years, 163 treaties, some bilateral, some multilateral, environmental, human rights, law of war, uh, probably more new treaty law during the eight-year period of the Bush administration than at any point in American history. So for a for a president who you know, in Europe people like to dislike because they thought he didn't believe in international law, he probably signed the United States up to more new binding. And these are well-known treaties. I mean, some of them are less, you know, extradition treaties or mutual legal assistance treaties, but you know, many of these were, you know, bigger multilateral treaties that, that we joined. Um, During the Obama administration, during the eight year period of the Obama administration, uh, the administration became partly only to 20 treaties, 20 versus 163, probably the fewest number of treaties during an eight year presidency than at any point in recent history. Now, I won't say that that is motivated by any animus on the Obama administration's part towards treaties. Part of it was that the Bush administration had pushed so many treaties through the Senate, there were just as not as many in the pipeline. Um, fewer were being negotiated, and the Senate was getting progressively more conservative, so the treaties that would have gone through quite quickly historically were being held up. So people like Senator Rand Paul actually will now not agree really to any treaty, uh, even tax treaties, extradition treaties. Uh, we've got a Senate where a number of our senators somehow think that treaties are sort of for the weak. Uh, and so that's, that's uh, a sad thing. In the uh, last 16 months of the Trump administration, the, um, and, and then I'll end with this on treaties, um, the president has transmitted no new treaties to the Senate. That's how treaties get to the Senate. The president has to transmit them after they've been negotiated by the State Department. No new treaties transmitted to the Senate. Uh, he is, uh, the Senate has only approved in 16 months one treaty. That's the Montenegro accession to NATO, one treaty. Uh, uh, The the administration has not sent uh, what's called the treaty priority list, which is a list that administrations typically send every two years. Uh, I was in charge of the process, both when I was at the National Security Council and then the State Department, uh, to look at the treaties that are out there and then to tell the Senate, look, here's the list of treaties, treaty priority list, which which ones we want you to work on first. So the administration hasn't even sent. A treaty priority list. So combining the draft executive order on a moratorium on multilateral treaties, uh, uh, review of treaties to which the United States uh, should withdraw, uh, absence of transmittal of new treaties, and absence of a treaty priority list, we see an administration that seems to be, you know, really quite hostile to uh, to international agreements generally. So in terms of watching, let's see you know, will it get better or worse? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's bad, bad so far, uh, but will he, will, are there people really who are reviewing treaties to which the United States has been a party for years and will pop up and say, well, we're gonna pull out of the ICCPR. I mean, I, that actually would surprise me, but I mean, are, there might be some others that, that they're reviewing. So let me end with uh, two international tribunals um, and things that might happen. Um, and these, these do worry me. Uh, let me start with the ICJ, uh, and the ICC. Uh, let me add a, a brief bit of history, uh, uh, which, uh, Daniel, I think you mentioned. Um, so I had, I had represented the United States before the International Court of Justice when Mexico sued us with, in, with respect to the consular notification cases. You'll recall these are the cases where, um, officials uh, uh, in Texas and other states had uh, uh, really forgotten or been unaware to give Mexican nationals who were arrested uh, for uh, murders their consular notice. You know, When all of us get arrested in someone's state, the first thing you get asked is, are you a foreign national? Do you want to have your consular office? If, if we're not immediately notified of that, that's a treaty violation. The United States had clearly violated its obligations to Mexico because Texas sheriffs, when picking people up, uh, you know, had forgotten, in addition to giving them their famous Miranda warnings, had not given them their Vienna Convention warnings. I think not through any malice, but largely because these people spoke Spanish. A lot of people in Texas speak Spanish. So your immediate thing, if you're a law enforcement officer, if you pick someone up to speak Spanish, is not to say, oh, are you a foreigner? It's to, you know, you assume that they're... Uh, 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 actually a U.S. national. Anyway, that case uh, involved Mexican nationals who had been uh, convicted of murder, sentenced to death, and were going to be executed when Mexico as a last-ditch effort uh, sued the United States before the International Court of Justice, uh, and uh, the International Court of Justice uh, ordered the United States to review the convictions and death sentences of all these cases. Um, This came down when I was legal advisor. uh, And Secretary Rice then convinced President Bush that we would actually comply with this ruling of the ICJ, which was an extremely difficult decision for President Bush because most of these cases were in his home state of Texas. Uh, uh, I can tell you that Texas citizens were not writing to him to say, please give reprieves to these Mexicans. His Secretary of State, my boss, Condoleezza Rice, uh, said to him, we need to comply with our international law obligations, even if it's difficult to do. And after listening to his advisors, President Bush, and probably the the most difficult international law decision he had to make, you know, ordered all of the states that they had to comply uh, with this ruling. Um, The end of that story was, you recall, that it then went up to our Supreme Court, uh, Texas challenged the president of the United States, said to the president, you can't tell us what to do uh, in Texas. Um, if you, for those of you who really know your US politics, when that went up to the Supreme Court, the person who uh, argued it for the state of Texas was the Solicitor General of Texas, Ted Cruz. Uh, uh, and uh, Secretary Rice, I was legal advisor at the time. I, I didn't argue the case, but I was on the briefs. Secretary Rice said, John, OK, you've gotten us into this. Are we going to win? Um, I made the mistake of saying, you know, I think we are going to win. I think the Supreme Court will rule in our favor. Um, And I was wrong. We lost. The Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of Texas and said that even though the president was trying to comply with an international law obligation, he lacked the power to tell Texas what to do. So Texas won. So with that background of how the Bush administration had dealt with an ICJ case, there's a new ICJ case before... Uh, against the U.S. Are you all aware of this? Iran has sued the United States before the ICJ. I see some nodding heads. This is another case that came out of a decision by our Supreme Court. There was a judgment in federal court in the United States uh, involving some victims of terrorism, of Iranian terrorism, who sued Iran, won, um, and then tried to seize Iran's central bank assets to pay that terrorism judgment. It went up to our Supreme Court Iran actually appeared, which they don't usually, and argued, you can't take our sovereign central bank assets to pay this terrorism judgment. <coughs> the, uh, the Supreme Court said, yes, you can. And so the United States seized Iran's central bank assets to pay this terrorism judgment. In the fall of 2016, during, still during the Obama administration, Iran then essentially appealed and uh, sued the United States in the ICJ. That case is ongoing, Iran v. United States. Uh, it is brought under the, a treaty, the Treaty of Amity. I'm a little bit surprised that we still have a Treaty of Amity between us and Iran. It goes back to the 1950s. Um, and so this has being quietly litigated right now. So here's my concern, and here's sort of what to watch. Um, is this, for those of you who know your international law, to just put a bottom line, is this going to become another Nicaragua case? will the Trump administration, um, particularly with John Bolton as national security advisor, take one look at this and say, I am not going to have the United States litigating against Iran under a treaty of amity before the ICJ, and we're out of here. Um, um, As as you know, the the, uh, ICJ cases are divided into jurisdictional phases and the merits phase. The United States is vigorously arguing uh, that the court lacks jurisdiction under the Treaty of Amity, that the Treaty of Amity provides rights for nationals and companies, uh, and that the Iran central bank, which is a government uh, entity, is not a uh, national or a company. So if the ICJ actually says, yes, we do have jurisdiction, which is exactly what happened, as you call, in the Nicaragua case. Uh, at that point, would we see the United States withdraw and just say, "We're not"? ICJ made the wrong decision. We don't want to be litigating against the Iranians, so we're gone. So um, I don't. I really don't know. There's not been really actually any press about this. It's been fairly quiet because the, they're still in the pleading phase. There have not been public hearings yet. Uh, but you know, you could frankly just imagine if President Trump focuses on the fact that. Iran is suing the United States before a tribunal in The Hague. You can imagine what the tweet would look like about that. Uh, uh, The hearings are in the fall and then it will become public and then I think we will see press stories uh, and so um, watch that spot to see what's going to happen. Let me just end on the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Um, Just again to give you a little bit of history. Um, you'll recall, and this becomes relevant and you will immediately see why, um, in the uh, President Clinton had uh, voted against the Rome Statute, ultimately signed it, but said he wasn't going to send it forward uh, to the Senate. In the first term of the Bush administration, there was a much more hostile approach to the ICC. John Bolton was the Under Secretary of State. Uh, and John Bolton was the one who signed the famous unsigning letter, where he on behalf of the United States wrote to the Secretary General uh, saying that the United States was withdrawing its signature from uh, the Rome Statute. John has famously said uh, that that was the happiest day of his life when the United States withdrew from the International Criminal Court. So John Bolton, um, for whom I served as a colleague and lawyer during the time I was legal advisor, has always been very hostile towards the International Criminal Court. <coughs> um, in the second term of the Bush administration, we really reoriented our policy, as most of you know. You know, When I was legal advisor and I had talked to Secretary Rice about this, we decided that you know, as, essentially as long as the ICC was not bothering us that, and it was doing useful work in the world, we would support it because we supported the cause of international justice. So if you recall, one of the very first things in the Bush administration's second term was the United States actually, uh, uh, didn't object to the uh, referral of the genocide in, in Darfur uh, to uh, the ICC. And we I actually gave a number of speeches saying we'd be prepared to support that investigation. So the arc of US ICC policy in the second term of the Bush administration was uh, essentially uh, constructive engagement, a modus vivendi, you know, we will support the court when we think it's doing work that's, that's important to do. Uh, uh, and uh, the Obama administration, really, sort of building on that, uh, had a slightly warmer approach, but not a lot. I mean, you know, they didn't send the Rome Statute to the Senate, uh, um, and uh, so that we pretty much had a cont- uh, continuity of policy from 2005 through 2017 for that. What is that? 13 years? Uh, uh, of essentially constructive engagement between the U.S. and the ICC. Um, now, uh, and I know many of you know this, the prosecutor though, Fatou Bensouda, who I know pretty well, has been in fact investigating the United States over uh, war crimes, alleged war crimes in Afghanistan, and also as part of uh, the CIA interrogation program. And last fall, she asked the uh, pre-trial chamber to allow her to open a move from uh, a preliminary examination to an investigation of the United States. Uh, We're still waiting to see what the pre-trial chamber will do, but people who know uh, the court better than I say that it's almost certain that the pre-trial chamber will uh, authorize a full investigation of the United States. So with uh, the Trump administration, And with John Bolton, the architect of the early hostile years of US uh, policy towards the ICC, uh, if the court opens a investigation of the United States, uh, will that essentially be waving a red flag in front of the bull uh, and therefore reverse the last 13 years of US policy of sort of constructive engagement with the court? I've written a bit about this because I do think this is avoidable. Um, I mean, people and I'm I'm about to break for questions, and I'd be interested in people's thoughts. I mean, I do know you know people have different views that you know we should we should have an investigation in the United States. This shows that we can, you know, large countries can be held liable. You know, the problem is is that if that happens, uh, the the Trump administration really will declare war. I think on the ICC. Uh, it will probably badger our friends to cease support, uh, uh, and, you know, it it will really serve the cause of, of, uh, international criminal justice if that happens. So, um, this is something that could actually happen at any time. We are waiting for a decision, uh, for the pretrial chamber, whether to open an investigation or not. I frankly think, if if I were a legal advisor, and I've actually said this to people in this administration, I do think this is an avoidable train wreck uh, through some diplomacy that would require some give on both sides. Uh, The United States has conducted numerous investigations, numerous investigations of all of these matters. When the prosecutor conducts her preliminary examination, though, she doesn't do it in coordination with the United States. All they do is sort of look at press reports and you know things that uh, you know, investigative groups have done. So I think what would be useful is if the, e- even if the court actually opens an investigation were to be to say, we're opening this, but we recognize that the United States has done a lot that we may not actually be aware of. We're asking the prosecutor to begin a dialogue with the United States to determine what has already been done. And then the United States would, in fact, it, you know, provide more information about what has already been done um, and, and thereby try to sort of avoid a, a train wreck here. Um, so, uh, John Bolton wrote an op ed, which you can pull up uh, uh, last fall before he became National Security Advisor, saying uh, that he really still thought that the International Criminal Court should be throttled in its cradle. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, I am. I. I, uh, when I was legal advisor, we really had worked hard to reorient U.S. policy towards what I thought was essentially a pragmatic approach to the court, Uh, and the question is will this sort of roll all the way back. So those are the things to watch. Um, Will there be changes in U.S. counterterrorism policy where there's been more continuity? What will we expect on U.S. policies towards use of force, more effort to try to explain and justify them? Treaties and international agreements, will we see more of the withdrawal doctrine, more things that we didn't even see coming in terms of withdrawal. Uh, What will the approach be to this ICJ case? And finally, what will be the approach to the ICC? Uh, So those are all things that I said haven't happened yet. Uh, And uh, so things to watch uh, in in the days to come. Uh, Again, just back to my very first point, I do have um, uh, some confidence in the lawyers who are in the government. Um, on the, uh, so that's a positive point. Unfortunately, this actually shows, this administration truly has shown the power of one individual, the president. I mean, this is the president who really does, often does not listen to any of his advisors, even his cabinet secretaries. And so, you know, he may on some of these things just decide as he did with the Iran deal or with Paris, this is what I'm gonna do and just overrule everybody. But I'm, I am, uh- I do believe that we've got strong institutions in the United States. The judiciary is there, the lawyers are there in the executive branch. We are beginning to see Congress beginning to push back a little bit more. Uh, of course, the American voters themselves may push back uh, in November 2018, and the House may change. So uh, uh, we will see how that all turns out. So with that, I will stop and uh, happy to take questions uh, on any of these things or things that I haven't mentioned. Please.